Welcome to a special edition of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Amplifying Black Voices, a series of interviews that help bridge the gap between what you think you know and what you need to hear about the true meaning of racial justice, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Real conversations about real experiences that lead to real change. Join the conversation now with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of IntelliKey Leadership Stories and our special series where we're amplifying black voices. You know, we've been inspired to get beyond the cable news and get beyond the headlines and bumper stickers and protest signs to really hear the voices, but also, more importantly, hear the messages that we need to hear about racial justice, about social justice, about getting along better with our fellow man. And that's the kind of interview series we've been having here. And it's a great pleasure today to have as our guest, Pastor CJ. CJ Johnson from uh, Shreveport. Good to have you with us. Absolutely. Uh, I'm honored to be on with you all, and I look forward to the conversation. Pastor CJ is a director at the radio station KOKA in Shreveport, and I was just recounting with him that uh, that's where I had my first job in radio. Uh, Pastor CJ and I both graduated from C.E. Bird High School, uh, probably 30 years apart, but that's a whole other (laughs) (laughs) question. Oh, yeah, we're just alike, me and you. (laughs) Went to the same high school. You know, but uh, uh, Pastor, the idea that in places like Shreveport, where, yes, there's diversity, but it's a very, you know, cross the line, other side of the tracks, separate but equal, all these old thoughts. But bring us up to date as far as your point of view and what we need to know about, you know, justice in a town like Shreveport? Well, I want to say to you, thank you so much for um, having uh, this type of dialogue and inviting me on to share my perspective as it relates to racial injustice in our community in Shreveport and even um, throughout the country. As you know, there is a national conversation uh, that is taking place um, as it relates to race. I like to say in 2020, we have had to deal with two type of pandemics. We've had to deal with a public health emergency and a public conscious emergency. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason why we've had to deal with a public conscious emergency is because we've seen that uh, history in some parts of this uh, country doesn't matter. You know, when you're a student of history and you study history and you realize history, one of the things that um, it tells you is that African-Americans have been an oppressed people in America. And not only have African-Americans been an oppressed people in America, but we still somewhat today, I'm not going to even say somewhat, we still fully um, today deal with that same type of oppression. Yes, we may have more liberties. We may um, enjoy more amenities, more areas and spaces uh, in the country, but we still have to deal with racial injustice and racial biasness. I think that it's very important for us to understand uh, what these racial uh, injustices are and racial bias. Now, speaking particularly here in Shreveport, one of the things that we deal with um, is kind of what you've already stated. And the reality of it is that it hasn't changed. There's still lines in Shreveport. We may 
uh, have integrated classrooms. Uh, we may have stores where we all can shop in the same line. Uh, we may can all eat um, in the same dining room at a restaurant. Um, but there is still a, a line in Shreveport. There is a Yuri Drive uh, from a Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Road. And there is um, all of these divisions as it relates to our inequities in our communities. There is a Broadmoor community uh, that experience um, total um, economic power. And then you go to a Cedar Grove who you see there is a very impoverished community. Um, you know, in Shreveport with African-Americans being the majority um, in Shreveport, we are still the minority in economic power um, in terms of uh, the economy. One of the things that I can tell you that uh, still seems here that there are still fabrics of uh, racial injustice, racism, um, and not just racism, but unbalanced relationships, relationships that are not uh, heavy. And one of the things that I want to point out more specifically is that we've seen racial biasness. When George Floyd was killed, there were officers within our own city who made comments. There was an officer, um, I won't say his first name, but last name Mason, um, who made a comment that said that he didn't find anything inappropriate in terms of the policeman placing his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Um, he, 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 and, and the tone in which he expressed it was a very uh, racial tone, but also it showed the injustice and the biasness that uh, we have for one another as ethnic groups. Now, I want to say this because I've been known for saying this within the community. I think biasness just doesn't exist in one community. I think African-Americans, we have our own biasness that we suffer with and we deal with and we exhibit and demonstrate to other races. You know, I'm more so a proponent of unity. I'm more so a proponent of bringing people together. And I'm more so of a proponent of figuring out how to build healthy relationships and dialogue um, so that we can be on one accord. So when you speak of racial injustice and race relations in Shreveport, we're still divided. And as a pastor, I would tell you, again, schools may be integrated, restaurants, they make it all dine in the uh, one dining room and checkout lines may be integrated and, and you may can drink at the same water fountain or uh, use the same things. But I've always said as a pastor, one of the most segregated days of the week is on a Sunday because you can look at community churches in Shreveport. You have all black churches. You have um, all white churches. You have um, churches that have little to no diversity. And that's the majority of the churches because there's no effort to bring people together. There's no effort. You know, I, I tell people, it's a job just to introduce people to each other. That's a job within itself because um, a lot of people feel that, oh, it's just, you know, you just got to introduce somebody. So, no, sometimes people don't want to be introduced to one another. Sometimes people don't want to have dialogue with one another. Sometimes people don't want to do. So it's a job. It's a challenge of trying to get someone to see that you have to reach across the aisle. You have to know someone uh, different than you so that they can become one. That's the work that I'm doing, and uh, that's how I'm trying to respond to the racial 
injustice in this community. It's so good. You know, I can't help but think, obviously, having lived in Shreveport, but also having lived in Chicago. So just, you know, magnify, but the same lines, the same neighborhoods, the same kind of church division that you're describing was going on there. Kirsten, you had a thought. Yeah. So in my mind, this is a soul sickness. This is a broken world. So when you're in these communities and you're seeing, right, and I'm talking even for the white people, my white people in my community, what do you see as the underlying soul sickness? There is some divine creator that created this world and you're disconnected from that if you're in this hatred and this separatism. Mm-hmm. I think the, the underlining issue with those in the white community is the sense of uh, not having to feel any type of responsibility for something that does not uh, provide to their uh, livelihood, that does not contribute to their family, uh, that does not speak to their makeup of their everyday life. And so I think that when people feel that they're not responsible or do not have to be responsible, then they show a lack of interest. You know, I've heard people um, who are white that say, um, I don't have a slave. You know, they say, uh, I I haven't owned any slaves. I'm not, um, I didn't keep you oppressed. I didn't cripple you or handicap you. I, I didn't raise you. So I have no obligation or responsibility to respond to your oppression. For me, that is that is a very profound Beautiful. statement. Yes. That is a very profound statement because yes. it's not about what you, the person, have done. It's about the 400 plus years of oppression that have been done by ancestors because we all come from people. It's about... It's about the trauma that was passed down from my great-grandfather to my grandfather, from my grandfather to my father, 100%. from my father to me. Right. It's about that trauma. It's about the trauma that I was raised with a fear of the white man and the white woman. You know, I was raised in that way. And it was because my great-grandfather raised my grandfather that way. My grandfather raised my father that way. And my father raised me that way. So it's about the trauma. It's about the stigma. It's about, as a Black man, you know, as a Black man, I know that if I say anything to a person that is white, and if I... If I say anything offensive, that you can't do it because the, the, the reaction of the police and the reaction of the, the legal system. You know, in New York City, uh, there was a woman who was walking her dog. She was a white woman. And there was a black man um, who was recording her because she was allowing her dog to, you know, go to the restroom in an area that was forbidden or banned. And she was basically breaking the law. Well, the black man started to record. And and you may have seen this. He started to record her. She turned around in anger. She turned around in pure anger. And she said to him, stop recording me. Stop recording me. She said, I am going to call the police and tell them there is a black man recording me. And there is a black man that is terrifying me. She put emphasis on the fact, a black man. Think about that. When you think about that, it almost sounds as if the crime is not recording. Right. The crime is right. being black. It's being black. The, the underlining 
tone and the underlining issue is one thing that I've stated first of the lack of interest because of failure to feel responsible. But then two, a big issue is there's a stereotype about black people in the minds of some, not all, white people, you know, that, and that's a reality. Now, there are white people that I know who are loving and caring and generous. You know, there's some white people I've met, I, you know, I would sleep at their house, I would eat their food, I would, I would do all that because they have a genuineness. But then also there are some people that I know that I couldn't sleep at their house because I would be afraid for my own life. Be afraid that if I get up and have to use the restroom at a certain time at night, that that something would happen to me. So what I'm saying is, is that there's a there's a gener- there's generations of African Americans who live in fear because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I have a dear friend, and he always says to me, Kirsten, you know, you as a black person, and I'm reciting. I can't say I have this experience because I'm not black. But he always says, I know who my friends are who will stand with me on the side of the street if the revolution ever comes. And there's mm-hmm. maybe one or two. That's mm-hmm. the sadness of it, right? And I'm speaking to my own community. Everybody wants mm-hmm. black friends. Everybody has black friends. But who will actually be on that side of the street in defense of what is unacceptable? Mm-hmm. Right? defense of what is unacceptable. And George Floyd and what is happening is the unacceptable. Your experience, everything you're talking about right now is the fact that you even feel that way breaks my heart. That is a soul sickness. And mm-hmm. that's unacceptable. It's an unacceptable aspect of where we are today. Yeah. And Pastor yes. CJ, if you would pick up on the generational thing, maybe this will help some of our listeners cut through the question about Confederate statues and flags and all this kind of stuff. What, you know, some people would say, what's the big deal? It's historical. It's a statue. You know, it's in the courthouse lawn. Eh, what's the, what, what's the problem? We have to understand that those who protect Confederate monuments and statues are protecting the history of their ancestors. And those who are offended by the statue and the monuments say that those statues and monuments represent the oppression of my ancestors and even the oppression of me today. I think the best example that I can give is how I was raised. My great-grandfather taught my grandfather not to say and do certain things toward white people. My Grandfather taught that to my father. My father taught it to me. And I'm in a generation now where I'm trying to make a difference so I don't have to teach it to my son. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is that that's the trauma. That's the generational issues. That's the thing. And it it spans beyond my great-grandfather. It goes to my great-great-grandfather. It is a psychological pain to deal with what African-Americans have to deal with. I don't think people understand how tough it is to be black, especially in America. You know, some people say, well, you got a job, you got a car, you're, you seem healthy, you dress well, you got a nice suit, you got a, you know, nice thing. Oh, I've said we have some liberties, but we don't have a total liberated country. There are some people who minds that are not free of the oppressions of the past. We see oppression that's happening right now in Louisville, Kentucky. 
We oh, see yeah. Brianna Taylor. We see that after after a case that, you know, I'll say it like this. You shouldn't settle anything if you don't feel that you're not in the wrong. If you're not in the wrong, you shouldn't offer any type of settlement. The fact that the city of Louisville gave a $12 million settlement but decided not to, you know, pursue those charges or indict those officers on those charges, that is, if that's not a clear sign of racial injustice, you mean give me $12 million, let me feel comfortable with $12 million as the part of the family. But that's almost a payoff to wipe away what those officers did. So we're going to let them off the hook because you got $12 million. So the thing that I'm saying is that if you don't feel you're in the wrong, why settle? Maybe the settlement came too early. The settlement was writing on the wall that the city felt like they were in the wrong. The thing that I'm saying is we're dealing with all of this racial injustice. You know, we talk about, and, I, and I'll go ahead and say this because I've had friends, and I call them friends because um, we have open dialogue. I, I'm the type of person, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, I'm going to have open dialogue because that's how we progress. That's how we get somewhere when we all can say what we feel. He said to me, he said, well, you know, uh, we're talking about what white people are doing to black people, but what about black on black crime? What about what black people do to black people? Well, you know, we can talk about white on white crime, but that's not the issue. That's, that's not where we are. We're talking about how to bring people together who don't look alike. That's what we're talking about. And the only way we can bring people together who don't look alike is that we got to deal with the issue. Uh, and the biggest issue between black and white people is race. Mm-hmm. But then we have a whole nother race of people uh, who are brown people, Hispanics, who deal with racism as well. But no one pays attention. No one hears it. And even I've said to my community, we can't treat Hispanics the way we're crying about being treated. Mm-hmm. Can't do it. You know? So I've, I've said to so many people that there's racial injustice everywhere. There's race relation problems everywhere. So again, to answer the question on uh, the generational dealing with monuments and statues, it's about the fact that I was born in 1988, but I am oppressed and I never was a slave. I never was owned by a white person, but I have feeling of oppression because of the way I was raised and what I was told not to do and not to say toward a white person. That's oppression within itself. That's anxiety as well. <laughs> you know? So clear. Well, Pastor CJ, you, you have a great platform of a radio station playing gospel music and very uplifting and but you also mm-hmm. have literally a pulpit I, I loved your thought of you know on Sunday morning we have more separation than on any other day almost how mm-hmm. do we start bringing people together what are you seeing as some of the ways we can start closing this divide I think it has to start amongst leaders. You know, uh, a lot of people say, hey, let's just bring everybody together. The problem is, is that when you get people of influence and people in positions of power who've agreed to stay where we are because where we are is great for our economy, (laughs) you know, is great for our way of life, then you'll never get a healed society. 
You'll never get a loving group of people. You'll never get one race of people. You'll never get that. And the reason why you'll never get that is because, again, leaders influence people, flocks of people. You know, it almost as if me as an, an African-American radio uh, broadcaster can say, you know what? You know, Rush Limbaugh, we disagree on everything, but we can be friends. We can talk. We can bring our people together. It takes something like that. I may say, you know, with this president, I don't like the rhetoric. I don't like things that are being said. But the thing is, is that, hey, if, if we want to come together and, and talk and try to reason with one another, then let's do that. You know, it's going to take leaders wanting to come together. That's how we're going to bring people together. As a pastor, I've always said this. If the heads can come together, then it's going to be easy to pull the body together. That's why it's important for leaders to make a commitment of unity. If leaders can, you know, and I've tried this. I've tried to bring congregations together and I failed. And the reason why I failed at bringing congregations together is because I felt, I realized and I learned that the pastors themselves are divided, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's hard to bring the congregation. So I've said, if we're going to start healing in the church, we may need to start with the pastors. <laughs> you know, we may need to bring the pastors together first and bring dialogue and conversations amongst pastors and then allow those pastors to be healed and restored in order to bring their people together. That's such an enormous thought. You know, many people follow Hollywood stars, and unfortunately, they have a very large voice. And it's, my kids and I were in the car the other day, and we were talking about Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. from an impoverished community, was a drug dealer, is now hanging out with Warren Buff, has a real potential to lead and many, many, many people follow him. What would you say? What would you want to see from them? I don't see him leading much. You come from there. Those were your people. That was your place. And now you're hanging out with Warren Buffett and you forgot? You forgot who you were? Like, don't you have a responsibility to do something to make a difference? Well, I think we all have a responsibility to our community. The way that I can respond to that is tell you what I'm doing and how I plan to do, you know, I just don't do radio. Radio has become this great platform that I use to do everything else that I do. I own a company, um, CJ Enterprises. I have 30 employees that work for CJ Enterprises. I own a tax corporation, and also I own a commercial cleaning company. That's where all those 30 employees work. And my business is growing thing that I've said is that I have a responsibility to my community. I grew up in the Lakeside community. So I said that I wanted to do several things. When my company get ready to build our company building, I don't want to build in, in, in downtown Shreveport. I don't want to build in on Erie Drive. I don't want to build in the high economic places. I want to build our corporation headquarters in Lakeside where I grew up. And then I want to partner with those high schools in that community. And help pay college tuitions and make a requirement of those tuitions to say that if CJ Enterprises pay your tuition, then you are required to come back to Shreveport and take a job either at CJ Enterprises or a job somewhere in Shreveport. And not only take a job in Shreveport, but you also require to rebuild a home and live in the Lakeside community. To rebuild, rebuild. I said, not only do I want to build my business in Lakeside, but I want to build my house as well in Lakeside. I want to build 
um, not only my house in Lakeside, um, um, and I have a beautiful home now, but I, I, I want to build my house in Lakeside. Not only build my house in Lakeside, but as well, one of the things that I want to do is that I want to make sure anything that I own, it's built in Lakeside. Now, responding to the question that I was given by Jay-Z is to say that when we come into wealth, when we come into greatness, it's not about sending money back to our community. It's about staying in it. That's how we, yes. that's how we make an impact. That's how we change lives. Because I can send a million dollars to every school in the neighborhood I grew up in. It is not as powerful as my presence in it. But you stay in your community. That was brilliant. I, if I got one thing out of today, that <laughs> When you come into wealth, that's mm -hmm. how you repair a community you care about. Don't leave it. Stay in it. Mm -hmm. Pastor, we've just enjoyed our time so much. You've been bringing back a lot of good memories of both Shreveport, KOK Radio, <laughs> uh, communities, neighborhoods. It's all good. But we'll close there. And we just can't thank you enough for your honesty and your straightforwardness and just giving it to us the way it is. It's what we need to hear right now. And the conversation is exactly the one we wanted to have. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed you all and I look forward to doing it again. That sounds great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a special edition of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Amplifying Black Voices. IntelliKey Leadership Stories is copyright 2020. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. I'm Jason Lanier White. On behalf of your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson, thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.